Hello. There is so much rubbish published about leadership and change management. This is the first line of the final chapter of the book I'll be discussing with its author on this edition of Forward Vision. How to Lead with Purpose, Lessons in Life and Work from the Gloves Off Mentor by Liam Black is a short, punchy, excuse the pun, book full of real-world examples from Liam's highly successful mentoring practice and with quite a lot of autobiography thrown in. If I had to sum up its message in one line, it would be decide what you want, then create the conditions to succeed. Now, I want to discuss Liam's ideas, but also given that one of the things he writes is that mentoring can be powerful in short bursts, I'm going to see whether I, as an organisational leader myself, can get some useful tips. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. Hi, Liam. Good morning, Matthew. It's lo- lovely to talk to you. Yeah, and to you. So let's start, Liam, because as I say, there is a you know, reasonably strong kind of autobiographical current running through this book. Tell us a bit about yourself and your leadership journey. Well, I come from an Irish immigrant working class family, very Catholic, and I suspect, I suppose my first sort of leadership experiences were in the church, and I believed that I wanted to become a Catholic priest, and that delusion was ended when I met Maggie Sheehan, and we got married in our early 20s. But that sort of, the formation I had as a, in, in that sort of milieu growing up, which I kind of rejected very aggressively in my sort of 20s and 30s. Now I realize that helped shape my view of the world and my belief that in the short time we have on this earth, you should do what you can to leave the world a bit better than it was before. And so in all the work that I've tried to do in my life, that's always been a sort of driver, whether that's been working with sort of street homeless people, running a social enterprise in Liverpool, working with Jamie Oliver to support young people, I had a um, leadership development business called Wavelength for 10 years where we tried to encourage as many leaders as we can to think about their impact in the world as leaders. And then in the last um, six years, going into my 60s, really focusing on the mentoring and trying to bring whatever experience and wisdom and leadership skills I've got to support a rising generation of leaders to put a social purpose at the heart of their work. So my work has always been around that sort of area and struggling often to understand how to be as impactful, successful, healthy leader in the world. Still working on that and very honoured really to be able to walk alongside some really interesting leaders and entrepreneurs as they try to make sense of how to have an impact in the world, hold on to their mental well-being and hold our relationships. Yeah, so I I want to explore a lot of that. But let's take a little detour first, Liam, because... One of the first people, perhaps I think the first person I interviewed when this podcast moved over to being sponsored by the Forward Institute uh, was an Anglican priest, actually. And I'm just kind of interested in this, so I'm being nosy, I think. But That's okay, nose away. Am I hearing right that, in a sense, what led you to abandon the potential life in the priesthood, where you could have been an amazing priest and an amazing kind of community leader? So... It was the celibacy rule. I'm not saying it's just about sex, but you you fell in love with a woman and you wanted to be with that woman. And that, you know, it was the celibacy requirement that was the thing that led you to abandon that career. And then this deeper disillusionment 
broken just i mean you know it's impossible to know but had the celibacy requirement not been there had you been able to marry your wife and have a family and be a priest do you think you might be a priest today that is a fantastic question. I think probably, whether I'd still be a priest today, I don't know. I sometimes joke with my wife that if I had met her, I could now be a cardinal or the first <laughs> Irish passport holding Pope, which she obviously laughs at very derisively. No, I think after we married, we went to British Columbia for two years as volunteer teachers with a Catholic missionary organization, which got shut down and a lot of the leaders of that priest are now served prison time for a lot of abuse. But I think if there had been the option, you can have the life that you want with this woman, and you can develop a, a ministry as a priest, I think I probably would have, actually. I've never thought of that. But yeah, I think I probably would. Whether whether I would have stayed with it, whether my disillusion with the institution of the church would have still happened, I suspect it might. I don't know. That's speculation. But I think, yeah, you're right. If the option was there, I probably would have taken it. Well, I don't know how many listeners I've got in the Vatican, but I would just say to you that your loss of Liam Black and his energy and his capacity to hobnob with big, <laughs> important, powerful people is another reason to consider whether that celibacy rule is doing the Catholic Church any favours. Anyway. And the costumes are great, Matthew. I'd look great. With my height, I'd look great. So, Liam, I, I cheekily attempted to sum up your worldview in a single line, which is decide what it is you want to do and then create the conditions for success. But why don't you have a go at summing it up in one line? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, as I say in the book and as I say to the people that I mentor, what I try and do in my own life and also the people that I have the honour to work with is around two things, clarity and courage, helping people get clear about what is it that they really want either sort of a, a bigger sense in their life or specifically in the leadership role that they have been given. And I tend to work a lot with people who are going through a time of transition and want someone to walk alongside them. So clarity and the second thing, courage. I think it takes some personal bravery to go for what you want, particularly if that's solving homelessness or tackling climate change, big, knotty, difficult issues and often that comes with some sacrifice on income or the time you have available to put into relationships. So that would pretty much, I thought your summing up of my sort of philosophy is, is right. And the older I've got, the more and more simple I want to make it. You know, I think earlier in my life, I had a lot more sort of complicated theories about leadership, which is why I'm a bit dismissive of some of the leadership books and programs that are out there. But at heart, what I'm trying to do is to support leaders who want to change the world to be clear about what they want, how they might do that, and then to support their courage in executing. So let's look at this notion of purpose a bit. I mean, I think purpose is, let me share with you a conversation I, I had with a group of HR directors. I had it a few weeks before I took on the current job. I said to them, it was a group about of 100, I think, or so. I said to them, how many of you have had a conversation about purpose? in your organization over the last kind of 12 months. And almost all of them had, because it's very kind of derigo, isn't it, to have a conversation about purpose. But then I said to them, great, okay. I said, well, then start to share with me the dilemmas that that conversation threw up. And, you know, not a single person was able to identify a single dilemma. And I, I kind of said to them, well, I don't know what you've been talking about. But I really don't think you've been talking about purpose because, you know, you're a company, you're mainly private sector, you've got to make a profit, you've got to maximise shareholder returns, you've got a variety of stakeholders, including your workforce, your customers. You want to be an organisation that is ethical as well as successful. And yet, this doesn't lead you to have any difficult challenges that you need to confront. 
Yeah, no, I think purpose is right up there with sustainability, innovation as uh, you know, one of those things that are talked about. A lot of bullshit is, is spoken about, but people don't take it seriously. And I think the evidence being, no, it's fairly straightforward. We, it's easy for us to align our ethical stance with our brand, with our product, with our people, when the reality is it's really difficult. It's really difficult in some charities that have a you would have thought have a very clear ethical purpose, but still struggle to align all of those things. So in a private company, particularly in a, a large corporate, it is challenging. And I do get really fed up with some of the sort of bland sort of cliches that there are around business and purpose. I would much rather a company was really clear and said, look, we're here to make a profit, to look after our people and to not do bad things. Great. What really does annoy me was when you hear companies banging on about values and purpose when actually their behavior is counter to that. I was just recollecting this week, actually, Matthew. I remembered that I once gave a, a really good talk, actually, on purpose and values to 200 senior leaders in this company. Got a big round of applause, went home very happy with a good job well done, and then prepared my invoice, which was for the post office, oh. which at that very time was sort of grinding the face of lots of innocent people all over the country. So it's it's a territory that we all should, but I think particularly large organizations should sort of go into with humility and the understanding that I think you're hinting at, that it is complicated and there'll have to be some nuanced, some difficult conversations about how you balance those things. Well, exactly. And that's my point about dilemmas. I think when we talk about purpose, we have to recognize that all organizations have got multiple purposes. So the idea you're going to discover one purpose probably misses the point. I mean, I, and you know, you and I, when we talk about purpose, because we're kind of middle-class do-gooders, we talk about you know, sustainability and justice. But I remember reading some great research a few years ago about ethical shopping. And it asked, it was mainly women, I think, who were doing the family shop, what were their kind of ethical considerations? And of course, the predominant ethical consideration for those women was how can I balance the family budget it was, I won't buy myself another bottle of white wine because I'm going to buy slightly healthier food for my kids. Or I won't buy myself a box of chocolates because, you know, I'm going to buy more treats for my children. So that their ethical frame was all about their responsibility to their family, absolutely understandably. So, you know, when we talk about purpose, we tend to kind of immediately talk about these great highfalutin objectives. Whereas, you know, as you say, if you're running a company, your immediate sense of purpose is to the people you employ and to the people who've invested in you. And those are ethical considerations. They are 100%. I remember banging on about this at a, on a stage once, and someone actually from Jaguar Land Rover, who were a big client of ours at Wavelength, stood up and said, yeah, it's really helpful, Liam. However, is it just not good enough for me to do my job well, create a really good business, create work for lots of people in our part of the world and treat them well and pay them as well as we are able to do and then to have a private life is that not enough do i need to then do something else and i think it's a good challenge and i think one of the reasons why a lot of the sort of you know to use your phrase middle class do-gooding rhetoric fails is it can too easily slip into judgmentalism high horseism you need to be better you need to be a sort of a theology that you know you need to be part of this and I think through my mentoring, and I, I know you, I've followed you for a long time, Matthew, and I think you've always acknowledged the complexity and the difficulty of all of this. And what strikes me in the mentoring I do, I mentor people from C-suite leaders trying 
very hard to create great companies that have a positive impact in the world through to startup social entrepreneurs knocking their brains out, trying to get young people out of gangs in South London, is to acknowledge the complexity of this and to avoid at all costs self-righteousness or a preachiness or a sort of theological approach to here's the doctrine, you must sign up to this, otherwise you're a sinner. That needs to be avoided at all costs. And I suspect that's why many people are turned off a lot of these movements because they can sniff there is a bit of judgmentalism here. And I have to say, as I say in the book, I was one of those people. I was a bit of a zealot in my 20s. You know, you're either with us or against us and, you know, the world needs to change and you need to stop worrying about petty domestic things and come to the barricades. And, you know, I kind of cringe a bit when I think a bit of that sort of zealot in my 20s. And I hope that what I've grown into is not a sort of complacency, but a sort of trying to occupy the space which says, you know, the issues that we face, climate, inequality, health, all of the issues that you're well aware of, Matthew, and I'm sure your your listeners are, are complicated. And yes, they are, and urgent. It's all about how do you balance, is something I've struggled with, how do you balance this need to be, have a patience and not preachy and bring people with you at the same time as, you know, the issues that we face as a society and as a world are bloody urgent and how to occupy that space in leadership and bring people with you and bring about meaningful change is a challenge. I, I often think about you and I you know, hear you on the radio talking about what's going on in the health service, urgent problems and challenges which have no easy solutions to them. And you're in the middle of that, trying to make sense of that and develop a new culture and a new thinking about leadership. It's the work of a lifetime, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, look, there's a danger of wallowing in complexity, just like there's a danger of wallowing in piety. But I completely agree. I think that for me, at the heart of the way I think about myself and the world is a recognition that there are inherent, inevitable tensions and dilemmas in the human condition, and also in human tasks like leadership. And and that Freud is is largely discredited for good reasons. But nevertheless, Deep down, I'm a Freudian in the sense that I think that Freud was right, that different parts of our personality are kind of always at war with each other. And that what we have to do is to find the best balance we can of these inherent dilemmas and tensions in our lives. And I think that's why I got so upset when all these HR directors said they'd been talking about purpose and hadn't recognised our dilemma, because it seemed to me that this was this just defied reality. 100%. And I think the challenge of this for those big organizations, which the Forward Institute work with, and, and, and I have to say, I think the Forward Institute is one of those institutions in the leadership world that is genuinely trying to grapple with the complexity of all of this and not get drawn into the show business leadership development program or the, to just focusing on individuals. But I think the challenge for senior leaders in large corporates is large corporates have got there because they've become really good at simplifying things supply chains, getting to scale. They know what they do. They, they have these brands, they have these channels. But when you're talking about purpose, it's not simple. And it's not easy to talk about or to embed, particularly with senior leadership cohorts that have grown up in a particular leadership methodology, where largely in lots of these organizations, you don't get to the top by raising thorny, difficult, complicated issues you get to the top by being obedient to the sort of prevailing nostrums. And so for those organizations to take on the complexity that we're, we're hinting at here, 
is bloody hard. And I think that in the some of the people at that, that level that I'm mentoring, the work is all about doing that. And particularly with people who have a particular view. So there's one man I mentor in a, in a well-known large company. And the biggest the thing that we've been talking about for years is how he stays effective with a group of people at that senior level who have different ethics and different standards and different purposes, who are there because they're united because they want to they want to earn money, they want the status, and they are supportive of what the company does. But when it comes to the climate or inequality or race and diversity, they are very divergent. So how do you stay in there, try to affect some change without getting preachy or burned out? That's a big challenge for a lot of the entrepreneurs and leaders that I work with that are in larger, complicated organizations with all sorts of different tensions and streams of opinion going on. You must experience that in the health service all the time. No, I, I do. And, and I want to explore a bit more of this kind of question of these kind of inherent dilemmas and tensions. But I, I mean, one thing I reflect on listening to you, Liam, is that you're a brilliant communicator. And I think one of the challenges here is that the rules of communication and the reality of life push us in different directions. So it is a strong rule of communication to be simple, to keep things simple. You know, in the media, in politics, you'll always be told, keep it simple. And yet that isn't the nature of reality. I mean, I, I'm having this conversation a little bit at the moment with people around the kind of Labour projects as they prepare for likely power. You know, I want to say to them, look, you need to be aware of the incredible complexity that you're going to walk into if you are in government, and you need to prepare the shadow cabinet for the complexity of leadership, you know, especially when these people will suddenly become the leaders of huge empires when they've, they've never employed more than kind of four research assistants before. But when I have this conversation with them, I can see a kind of sense of, well, look, but what we need to win is to keep things really simple. And you're wanting us to introduce complexity to all of this. And, and that seems to be problematic. So I think, I think one of the challenges here is, is how do we develop forms of leadership which enable us to communicate complexity, but without kind of just baffling, alienating, confusing, turning people off? Yeah, no, 100%. Someone said to me recently, uh, someone I met who got a new job in a fairly large organization with a quite a difficult job to do internally as well as externally, phoned her up and she said, oh, I've got good news and I've got bad news, Liam. I said, what's the good news? I got the job. What's the bad news? I got the job, you know, because it suddenly <laughs> dawned on her, you know, just what she is up against. So I think, yeah, I, it, it's a conundrum, isn't it? And I think often we might be confusing a little bit sort of simplistic with simple. You know, the simplistic things like, you know, I hate those five lists. We're going to stop the boats and we do this and do that as if, and each of those is like really complicated, challenging thing to do. You know, to be in the shoes of Keir Starmer and those who look likely to take over the mess that, that we're in at the moment, it is a big challenge. But I think that we should strive to develop a political narrative which acknowledges the challenge and the complexities. But the simple messages, I think, need to be around trust us, we understand what these complexities are, and you can trust us to to deal with them and not to talk down to you. But that's easy to say, isn't it, before you go on the radio or you get mobbed on Twitter. Now, one of the phrases that you use in the book, and you don't claim it to be your own phrase, but it's obviously a phrase that you, you use a lot, is intriguing. It's the phrase, not my circus, not my monkeys. Tell us a bit more about not my circus, not my monkeys. 
So one of the things that has come up in my own leadership experience and also the people I mentor is you listen to people talking about wealth. So-and-so said this, and then so-and-so did this, and I got involved in this. And so how easy it is for people to get drawn into the dramas, the complexities, the game-playing of other people and end up being knocked off their own purpose and their own sort of plan, sometimes by people who are doing it unconsciously, but often the more senior you get, people doing it very consciously to derail you if they're not agreeing with what you want to do. And I heard this, I can't remember where I heard it first. I think it's a Polish politician who used it. It's not my circus, not my monkeys. That's your issue. It isn't mine. It's really interesting you picked that out, Matthew, because I would say of all the things in that book and all the things that I have said and tried to help the people I mentor, that is the thing that really lands with people. To the extent that one of them, when we finished our work together, commissioned a piece of art, which is hanging in uh, one of my rooms here in my home, of a circus with monkeys, with not my circus, not my monkeys. And I think it's something that I need to remind myself all of the time and the people I mentor is on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis, make sure that you are not getting knocked off what it is that you want to do by the game playing and often mendacity of other people. It's very easy to do that. That's really interesting. And I I recognise it. And I think it is something, you know, we we live in a society which tends to prize youth over age, even though, of course, it's still old blokes running most things. We're great, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, aren't we great? (laughs) But I do think that is something that does get better with age. I find my ability to kind of step away from the kind of melodrama of organisational life has improved. I did used to get sucked in and think that it was my job to solve everything. And I'm now much more kind of selective in terms of what kind of battles I, I engage with. It does get better with age, as in the, you know, the famous imposter syndrome thing, with me anyway, has got better with age as you become a bit more confident in what you're doing. And I think if you approach the experience you've had with humility, you can end up in a place where it's you're not limited by that and you are able to be more effective without getting in people's way or creating the dramas that I certainly did when I was younger. Can we explore uh, another kind of question here, which I think is is one that we we don't explicitly talk about enough, which is the question, should I change myself or should I change the context in which I operate? And I think that we tend to focus when we think about things like mentoring and leadership on the former. We tend to think, look, the job is is about how it is you can manage yourself. But actually, often the best way to improve things and, and actually change the way that you operate is to change the environment. This is, it's kind of, you know, a simple example is what behavioral economists call commitment devices. So things that we do which change the context in which we operate and make it easier for to achieve our goals. So a really simple example is if you're trying to give up alcohol, whether it's for the rest of your life or just for January, well, don't have any booze in the house because if you feel like a drink and you've got to go all the way down the off license or the pub, then you're more likely to stick to it than you will do if you can just put your hand in the fridge. When you work with people and you see that they're kind of stuck, is your starting point to kind of get them to reflect upon themselves or is it more prosaically to say, okay, look, how can you kind of rearrange things around you so that the incentives to do what you want to do are stronger and the 
the incentives to be dragged into things you shouldn't be dragged into are weaker. It's funny you should talk about the drink and the off-license. A lovely, lovely young man that I, uh, I really just, it's just a delight to mentor him. He's really talented. I think he's going to do some great work in the world. But he's addicted to his phone. He would be sending me WhatsApp messages at like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm going, what are you doing? So I said, why don't you just lock the phone in the car at night so that actually if you feel tempted, you're going to have to get up and go get the car. So I have lots of little techniques like that. I mean, I have to say, don't tell anyone, Matthew, but a lot of the advice I give people, it's like really simple. It's not very complicated. Things like getting into role appropriately for whatever you're going into. So for example, you know, people will say, oh yeah, I had such a busy day, I you know, went into this meeting at half eight, and boom, it was awful and I wasn't at my best. And I said, well, look, why don't you do simple things like tell your PA, if you're lucky enough to have one, to put blocks into the day so you can prepare yourself. Never have, if you can control it, never have more than a certain amount of meetings every day because you're just going to be, you're not going to be very good. Something that I've, a mentor I had years ago when I was in Liverpool, when I was really struggling with complexity and, and workload was always walk to work if you can and very deliberately get into that role. So when you walk into the office or the boardroom or the, the C-suite, you have prepared yourself. So many people just rush on the tube, rush in, rush in, unprepared, and, and wonder why it hasn't gone very well. I think those sorts of simple techniques are very important to ensure that it isn't simply you're looking inside yourself all of the time. I think if you put those in place, for example, this, this guy, I senior in this large company, and he would say, oh, this is last year, I feel so ineffective. I'm running around from meeting to meeting. You'll never believe, you know, I did 10 meetings yesterday. They were all a bit shit. And at the end of the day, I went home, got home at 10, didn't have time to put the kids to bed. And I said, well, who controls your diary? You know, why are you doing this? And he says, oh, well, it's my PA. And I said, well, have you had a conversation with her about who actually can get access to your diary and how you want to structure it so you don't go mad and you're more effective? And he went, well, kind of. And then he had a much more explicit conversation. So it's very easy in the sort of tumult of the everyday to forget to do those simple structures which can help us be at our best at times when we need to be. I agree with that so strongly. And I think that very often we spend a lot of time being introspective about why we can't change when the reasons and what we have to do are pretty obvious. And that's part of the kind of use of a kind of mentoring conversation. I'm going to give you a little story which you can put in your next book, Liam, because I know you're going to... Fantastic. I'm on the lookout for great content always. I know you're going to love this. When people do that, when people kind of indulge in slightly self-defeating behaviour and don't do the things that are kind of obvious and overcomplicate things, I, I always remind them of the, the story of Miles Davis and John Coltrane playing together. And Coltrane, as you know, the great Coltrane, as was his wont, he kind of went into a long, meandering solo, which went on much longer, really, than it was, you know, they, they didn't plan what they were going to play. They were ad-libbing largely, but went on in the end. He turns to Davis and he says, I'm sorry, Miles, you know, when I'm in those solos, I just don't know how to get out of them. And Miles Davis said, well, you could try taking the fucking horn out of your mouth. <laughs> yes, I, I, I yeah. think that sometimes you just need to say to people, just take the fucking horn out of your mouth. Yeah, that could be the book on on the fucking horn. You know, <laughs> mind you, that might get misinterpreted. Um, the, the, I agree. I, know, I, I think also there's an element of, I don't want to generalize too much here, but here I go generalizing. A lot of the social entrepreneurs that I work with have 
these unrealistic expectations. I'm going to create this amazing business. I'm going to change the world. We're going to be a great place to work. I'm going to be a B Corp and do marathons. And have children. I say, well, actually, that's a lot, isn't it? And when they go into it, they have this often at the early stage, this view that, you know, being a good leader and being a good entrepreneur means indulging a lot of people around you who might not be very good and might be out to bring you down. And the idea that what might improve the company and improve your life is getting rid of some people. I'd spend a lot of time saying to me, well, maybe they need to leave and maybe you need to make that happen, you know, because that is what is getting in the in the way. So a bit of sort of appropriate selfishness and also appropriate ruthlessness, I think, is definitely required in leadership. And, and I think some of the value of mentoring and coaching can be helping people get to to see that and make the right decisions with humanity. And sometimes, as you well know, Matthew, it's just bloody messy and complicated and you sometimes have to take decisions without all the information and unsure of it, but you have to do it. So, Liam, final thing I want to talk to you about is I think I am unmentorable. <laughs> I want you to persuade me that I'm not. It's, I'm, you know, I feel quite quite late in my career to be wrestling with this, but I have had coaches and mentors at various times, and it feels like one of two things happens. So either it becomes too intellectual. And the thing is, I'm cleverer than most of my coaches. So we get into kind of intellectual conversation. I'm being slightly ironic, but nevertheless, put it this way, I'm not cleverer, but my my ability to kind of throw concepts around and bullshit is unlimited. So I get into I get into these kind of slightly abstract conversation with coaches where I end up thinking, well, I'm not sure they're any cleverer than me. So why would I get anything from them? Or because I'm a deeply troubled, shallow and needy person, they get into kind of very personal territory about, you know, the, the things I can't kind of sort out in my life and all of that. And that feels like it's a kind of poor man's psychotherapy, really. I think, well, in the end, this isn't psychotherapy. If I wanted a bloody psychotherapist, I'd need to be going for three hours a week for 15 years to really get to the root of my problems. And so I, I've, I've had both experiences, both the kind of intellectual thing, which doesn't feel particularly valuable and the kind of more personal thing which feels like it's a bit half cock so what have I been doing wrong why am I unmentorable in <laughs> well because I think you might be framing what a mentor is wrongly so a coach you know we could have another whole podcast about the difference in coaching and, and mentoring but for me what I offer to people is to be helpful and that helpfulness can be sometimes like really straightforward I need to connect you with someone who I think can help you at that particular business challenge. Or you are looking for investment. Oh, actually, you should be talking to so-and-so at so-and-so investment. But other days, when they're struggling, it can be more, I mean, inverted commas, sort of therapeutic, as in a place for people to rant, a place for, I mean, the thing is, people, you know, again, maybe it's going back to my religious days. One of the sacrednesses, I think, of being a mentor is people tell me things they don't tell anybody else. They don't tell their board, their investors, their the people that they work with, and, and often their partners. And I think providing that opportunity for people alongside the other roles of championing them, supporting them, connecting them, that's the kind of mentoring I do. So, you know, if I was mentoring you, I would be saying, okay, Matthew, how can I be as helpful to you as possible now? And it, one day you might want to talk about 
your neediness and your narcissism. Another day you might want to say, well, I've got this particular issue. What did you do when you were confronted with something similar? A lot of the people that I mentor, uh, particularly in the corporate world, also have coaches. You know, they're kind of over-supported, uh, uh, some of them. And the coaches will work on particular things. And some of them said to me, you know, I don't want you to ask me, Liam, how I'm feeling or what I think about that. I'm feeling shit and I don't know what to do. What I want is some straightforward talking. And this is where the sort of gloves off shtick comes from. For God's sake, don't do that, what you're planning to do. I did something like that at your stage and it was a disaster. Maybe you should think about something else. So I think that for all your neediness, narcissism, huge intellect, etc., we all need help. And I think maybe it is you just haven't found the right person to help you. So send me your brief. I'll tell you what my rates are and I'll see if I've got time for you. I, I will certainly consider that. And by the way, I didn't say I was narcissistic, and that's twice you've said that I'm narcissistic. I want to, I want to point out that I'm one of the least narcissistic people I know. Um, uh, now. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, oh, ho, ho, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the most humble person I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. <laughs> well, no, what, but what about the moral dimension of this, Liam? Because if I look back over my life and I was to list the biggest regrets I've got, I think probably definitely one and probably two of my biggest regrets would be bad advice I gave people, which they then acted upon. You know, you're not trained as a mentor. You know, I know psychotherapists, for example, it is considered essential if you're a psychotherapist that you you yourself have a psychotherapist that you can go to and reflect on what you're doing. What do you do to make sure that you are acting in a responsible manner, given that ultimately the people who work with you are giving you quite a lot of power over them? Yes, they are. And and also part of that sort of power comes from often being a lot older than the people I'm mentoring. If you're mentoring a early 30-something, high potential social entrepreneur and avoiding the sort of, you know, I'm not your dad or your big brother. I'm someone that you... Uh, spend time with to give you what I hope will be helpful advice. The way I deal with that is both in the sort of the contracting with people. I'm really clear with people. I have no qualifications. I'm not a coach. I'm really explicitly not a coach. And I, I explain in the way that I have explained to you, this, this is what I have to offer and it's not for everybody. But in terms of ensuring that um, I don't step over those lines and you know it, it, it stays as ethical as it needs to be and I want it to be. There's a woman that uh, coached me years ago who's become a friend who's really good at that and she's a she's someone who who oversees other coaches. I speak to her regularly about that and she reminds me that and she actually was the woman who said, you know you're not a coach, Liam what people want from you as a mentor is not your technique or your particularly coaching methodology, they want you because of the particular advice you've had and the particular businesses and organizations that you've been involved in. So I'm, I am acutely aware of that, and there's no easy answer to it. And when people ask me questions that are you know, quite personal, you know, about how they balance the horrible brutality sometimes of the environments that they're in and the work they have to do with their home life, I can just give them some of the stuff I've done that's worked and not worked. But yeah, very aware of the the territory that I'm on. I mean, sometimes, you know, Maggie said to me once after I was not giving her the detail, but saying, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with one of my mentees today. She said, well, actually, you sound like you've kind of become the priest anyway, that sometimes it's a bit like confession that's going on. I'm, and I'm very aware of that and very aware that, you know, 
uh, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just uh, someone who's uh, trying to make sense of this world with people. Well, Liam, it's been great talking with you. Your book, How to Lead with Purpose, is, is short, it's punchy, it's great fun, and I took a lot out of it. So I'd encourage people to get hold of it. And Liam, thanks so much for joining me on Forward Vision. Real pleasure and great honour to talk to you, Matthew. And, uh, but the best of luck in your work, which is so important for the country. Thank you. Liam's book helped me to reflect on my own leadership. I find myself in the disconcerting position in my current job that I've never felt more motivated or ambitious in any leadership role I've undertaken. But at the same time, I'm more aware of my own frailties, limited energy, background anxiety, the gap between my view of the world and that of most people under 35, the fear that by continuing to work into my 60s, I'm sacrificing the opportunity of having a different post-work chapter in my life. So maybe it's simply a rationalisation, but one thing I think leaders should do is consistently check in on why they're leading and how they're leading. In a perfect world, we would all have mentors. But failing that, reading a good leadership book, like Liam's, is not a bad second best. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.